0: are listening all around the world. Amen. Let's begin with a word of prayer. My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. I want you to remember that today's Bible story is actually Easter night. It's still the first day of the week. Now, we're a whole week past Easter and, and maybe your Easter direction, d- d- decorations are going away and maybe you've eaten all of the peanut M&M's, <laughs> which I have, right? Or your, your, your Reese's eggs, which I think are gone, yes. And, and we're sort of putting Easter away. Well, the, the writers of Scripture and who planned the lectionary, they're not done with Easter. We're going to read Easter passages from now until Pentecost. And I want you to put yourself into the mindset of those ten disciples now, you might say, well, Doc, there were 11. Yes, but we know Thomas wasn't there. And I, I want to say that every time I've preached this pra- passage, I've always preached on Thomas. And it occurred to me that there's a whole story before we ever get to Thomas that most preachers skip right over. Why? Because Thomas is the softball in the passage. Everybody in the congregation is doubted at least once. Everybody has wondered, why am I here? Why do I get up every Sunday morning and go do this crazy stuff, right? Why do I put all that money in the plate? What in the world am I here for? Why couldn't I sleep in like the heathens? We've all asked. Thomas is the softball. So we're going to look at the first part of the story today. And uh, it's not always a happy part of the story, which is going to be hard for me because I'm a fairly joyful preacher, but here we go. In 1976, Peter McWilliams wrote a groundbreaking book called How to Survive the Loss of a Love. Well, why was it groundbreaking? Because up until this time, psychologists and social workers had thought of grief as happening only when a person had died. And you, you all probably had this in basic psychology in college, Kubler-Ross said there were five stages of grief and you climbed the little staircase of grief and you went from denial to anger to bargaining to depression to acceptance. When you got to the top of the little staircase, you were done with grief. Well, McWilliams expanded that. And he said that, you know, you can grieve over any significant loss. It could be an item. It could be a precious item that a loved one had given you. It could be a divorce. It could be the loss of a relationship or a pet. It could be a prized possession. McWilliams said, we grieve over any significant loss. And if we are willing to help people grieve over the loss of a loved one, we need to be able to help them grieve over the loss of Something significant to them. A lady called my counseling office once. She said, Pastor, I I need therapy right away. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, my dog died. I said, okay. She said, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm crying all the time. I can't go to work. I said, well, tell me about the dog. Turns out she had purchased the dog. It was actually gifted to her when her last child had left for college. And the dog had become a surrogate for her kids. And she spoiled the dog and she loved the dog. And, and I could only picture it because I've seen people, the dog was probably rounder than it was long because for some reason, those people need to overfeed the dog, right? You could just roll it down the street. And I said, you're not crazy. She said, what? I said, you're grieving. There were 10 people in the room and they were all Grieving. So, for many of us, peace will come only when we come to grips with our past. Many of us are haunted by guilt and resentments, past fears, and lingering hurts. Now, David Spangler wrote a book called Everyday Miracles, and he talks about living near the Everglades. And I didn't know this, but in the Everglades, they have boardwalks over the marshes. And, and now I need to go down to the Everglades and try this, alligators like marshmallows. Marshmallows. We have an amen. Linda says alligators like my... I never knew that. I do know that brown bears like uh, wintergreen M&M are uh, lifesavers. And you can get in trouble for the Philadelphia Zoo for throwing them in. Because the bears will come over and, and chew on them and do a little show for you to get more wintergreen... Now, Vicky didn't know that I'd ever did that. Yes, I've been asked to leave the Philadelphia Zoo for feeding lifesavers to the brown bears. Anyway... So he talks about needing a a moment for himself and he went to the state park and he was walking along the boardwalk with his marshmallows. And he got to a a fairly deserted place and he threw the marshmallow in the water. And and, uh, you know, they're like submarines. The alligators just slowly came to the top and there was one set of eyes and then another set of eyes. And he said there were like six to eight alligators that all just popped up to get this marshmallow. And it occurred to him that they they didn't come from far away. Those alligators had been following him all along, thinking, hmm, that looks like a delicious person sandwich. They didn't know he had the marshmallows. I don't know about their sense of smell. And it occurred to him at that moment that alligators in this story are like our memories. And even when we think we're alone and totally free, powerful memories just swim underneath the murky waters of our awareness, just behind the bushes that grow in the landscape of our lives. And they're unexpected eyes that watch us. And if we allow them, they control us. I talk to my my patients a lot about the fact that When we are frightened, we often let our eight or nine year old self steer the ship. Our memories can come up and change the course of what we're doing. That's powerful, isn't it? Some of us will never have peace of mind until we come to grips with the alligators of our past. Deep within the cells of our bodies reside the memories of every past sin, every past hurt, every past resentment. Once in a while, these sins and hurts and resentments rise up in our consciousness and trouble us and frighten us and throw us off balance. We may not even consciously know that they're there, but they still eat at us and rob our joy. The disciples were grieving. Now, what had the disciples lost? Well, they had lost Jesus. Their friend, their teacher, their mentor, and yes, as we said in Sunday school this morning, their Messiah. They had lost hope. We talked about this last week. They were hoping for the Davidic kingdom to be reestablished and the Roman oppressors pushed out. Some of them, the practical ones, were saying, three years of my life. I have lost three years of my life following this man I thought was the hope of Israel, and he's gone. I'll never get those three years back. Remember that movie Napoleon Dynamite? I don't know if you watched it or not. Some of us have kids who are the same age. My kids made me watch it. At the end, they said, what would you think, Dad? I said, that's 90 minutes of my life I'll never get back. (laughs) The disciples said, that's three years of my life I'll never get back. They had given up family. They'd given up friends. They gave up business relationships. They gave up personal freedom. They were hiding in a locked room. And I I want you to think about this. They had lost Judas. Now, we don't talk about this a lot, but Judas, Judas had traveled with them. And I like to think of Judas sometimes as Sheldon in Big Bang. All the disciples are sitting. He'd walk over and he'd say, that's my spot. And they're still sitting there, and there's still an empty spot for Judas. And they want to tell the stories. Remember when Jesus put Judas in his space over that alabaster bottle? Or Jesus, Judas would have liked this? Or... Why did Judas do, Judas do what he did? We'll never know. They were grieving, and each surviving disciple was on his own step of that Kubler-Ross Staircase. The first step is denial, and some of the disciples might have been saying, "How could this have happened?" Anger. The Jewish leaders never understood Jesus. Bargaining. What could I have done differently? If only it had been me instead of Jesus. Depression. Well, Peter, what gets to sit in this chair? I deserted. I denied. I didn't act like a disciple. I'll never forgive myself. An acceptance. Well, at least one of them said, that's that. The travelers to Emmaus were like, well, we're done. We're getting out of Jerusalem. Even Peter later on in the Gospel of John says, well, I'm going fishing. They were all in their own place of grief. One of my favorite opera directors who recently passed was uh, Kay Costaldo Walker. And I, she might have been my favorite because she was the first director of my first professional opera in 1993. Uh, it was Pagliacci. And she had, a con- <laughs> she had this concept, and she used it often. She would say, we need to create a landscape of pain. Because, you know, in an opera, what's going to happen Somebody's going to die. There you go. Tim, Tim uh, Allen, the comedian, says opera is Italian for death by music. <laughs> right? But that's exactly where we are. There's a landscape of pain. And what's the one thing you don't have when you're grieving and in a landscape of pain? Peace. Now, there was a man who said, you know how to find peace? He said, I found that the best thing t- to do is to finish what you started. He said, So today I started two bags of potato chips and a chocolate cake. Now, you may want to find peace that way. That's not the way we would recommend it here at Kings. Ten men were lost. Ten men were hiding. Ten men were grieving. Ten men were weeping. Ten men were turning in on themselves, hopeless and without peace. Well, we've all been there. Some of us are even there right now. Some of us have lost loved ones in the last two years to COVID or to other things. Some of us have lost our job or, or some of us are reduced to our job is now an 11 inch screen. And people shouting at you, you're on mute, you're on mute. Our identity, our, our, our work identity has been taken away or lost or changed. We've lost our freedom, there's big signs. You cannot enter without a mask. There's family members that won't let us in their house without a mask or if you've been boosted. We have lost, we've lost human contact. A man, true story, once wrote a letter to his church that he was uncomfortable with the passing of the peace. Can I tell you, I miss the passing of the peace when you all get up and you hugged each other and you talked and I would have to say things like fellowship must now cease. Sit down, we gotta get back to the work of worship. No, that is worship when the body of Christ takes care of the body of Christ, COVID has stolen that from us. COVID and life in general has given us all a significant loss. And many of us have never found the peace of Christ because we've never heard him say, peace be with you. We're all on our own step of the staircase. So Jesus arrives through a locked door, and he says, peace be with you three times. Peace comes when someone pays a price of suffering. The peace of Jesus comes for those that have been emotionally hurt, financially hurt, politically hurt, physically hurt, or spiritually hurt. One author says it this way. We, as recipients of the apostolic mission, gather on the second Sunday of Easter, and he says, I suspect that there are some of us that still are behind locked doors. We still spend a certain amount of time locked up within ourselves. Isn't it true that we lock other people out of our lives at times? Whenever there is someone we refuse to forgive, we lock them out. And in refusing to forgive, we lock up part of ourselves as well. What if Jesus had locked the disciples from him because of his bitterness of their betrayal? If that was the case, he would not be the Jesus we know and love. Jesus forgives the disciples. He comes to them in their betrayal and he finds them and unlocks the door of their hearts. Sometimes we may lock out a spouse or a child or a coworker. Sometimes we lock out whole groups of people and nations. Jesus comes through our locked doors. Then what does he do? He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gives them, or shall I say better, he reminds them that in the kingdom of God, one of the greatest gifts we can receive is forgiveness. Now, I want you to know that we've heard sermons on forgiveness our whole lives. But this was new information because the risen Lord had just died on Friday to give forgiveness to the whole world. Jesus had forgiven people along the way. Remember the man who came down from the roof and he said, which is harder to say to this man? Arise, pick up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven. So he forgave his sins and then he told him to walk and the guy left the room. But Jesus had never given the message of forgiveness to the whole world until this moment. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit leads us, and he leads us in unique and different ways. And I got to tell you, in the last two weeks, he has directed my reading. Now, we all know that I read far too much. And this is going to sound a little bit like bragging, but I want you to feel this journey that I really believe the Holy Spirit took me on. The first book I read was called Absolute Surrender. It was written by a South African pastor. And the whole point of the book was putting down what I want and picking up what God wants for me. And that I have to absolutely surrender every part of my life before God can fill me with his spirit. I like that book so much, I went on Amazon and I sent a copy to my son, the pastor. And I thought, okay, Holy Spirit, I got it. I got to put stuff down so you can pick me up. The next book I read was called Walking with God. And it's listening and looking for God in your life. Because most of us go through life without looking for God's hand. Now, when we we do church camp, we do what's called a God sighting. And before I preach, the uh, MC for the, the evening will get up and say, okay, where did you see God today. And they encourage the youth to look for God's hand in their lives. And they'll say things like, you know, we thought we were done. The shingles weren't going to come. Home Depot said there are no shingles. And then all of a sudden this contractor drove by and he said, what are you doing? They said, we're waiting for shingles. And he said, I got extra shingles in my trunk. You want them? And all of a sudden the kids are putting a roof on the house that they thought they wouldn't get done. And you can see the young people's excitement for the hand of God grow because they've been actively looking for God in their life. I said, okay, Lord, I'm getting it. I got to put stuff down so you can pick me up and I got to look for you in my life. So then the next book on my reading list and the the way I get my reading list is I look for inexpensive audible books. And the next one I had bought was called The Double Portion Life. And it said that the double portion that Elisha received when Elijah went to heaven is available for every believer. But we aren't looking for it in the right place. Okay, are you feeling a little beat up by God with a two by four? Receiving the full power of God because it is available to every believer. So I got to tell you, I slipped a book in here because I was feeling a little beat up. And I read uh, God's Way is the Best Way by Zig Ziglar. I needed, I needed, Zig Ziglar tells good stories. I just needed to go, huh. There was nothing in there that related to this message, but I needed a break. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back to my reading list. And the last book I read was called Ask for the Rain. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a metaphor for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is Rain. That God is going to open up heaven and the Holy Spirit will reign on us. And the author said that the Holy Spirit-led revival is going to come when we recognize that we're empty vessels in need of God's filling and that we don't have to ask for the filling that the Holy Spirit has been present since the day that Jesus breathed on the disciples. Pretty heavy books to read in a two week period. So just so you know, I've read uh, two books about an archeologist who goes and finds lost archeological stuff. I needed a break, I've been reading fiction for this week. I put down the heavy hitting stuff, but it didn't leave me. As I prepared this sermon and, and continued to pray for a mighty move of the spirit in our hearts, in our congregation, in our community, I had an image of the church all sitting with an empty cup, reaching up for God's filling. And the Spirit of God was already given. The rain of the Spirit is falling and the river of the Spirit is flowing. Why don't we see it? Because our cups are full. We're coming to church with cups that are filled with things that aren't of God. Some of us are familiar with the term Netflix and chill. And we're filling our cup with whatever the new series or movie on Netflix is. Some of us are filling our cup with work. Some of us, believe it or not, fill our cup with church. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Some of us are filling our cup with misaligned priorities. We have to stop and say, what comes first in your heart? Some of us are filling it with family. I've heard Parents and grandparents say, well, you know, my grandchildren or my children come first. No, God comes first. And then the family. Some of us are are filling it with fluff, TV, hobbies, overtime, sleep. Some of us have cups that are so filled with wounds and scars from the past that there's no room for God's blessing. And some of us, like we said earlier in the sermons, are filled with unforgiveness for ourselves and for others. It's not an exhaustive list. But I encourage you, church, to look in your cup and see if it's empty or if it's not empty, what is in your cup that's keeping you from receiving the blessing and the spirit of God. Anything, literally anything can fill your cup and keep you from receiving God's love and power. Jesus offers peace. In fact, I'm not going to sell t-shirts this week. I'm going to make a bumper sticker. My bumper sticker is going to say this. Put it down, let it go, and lift it up. Now, imagine if we all got bumper stickers that said that. People would ask us, what does that mean? Empty your cup, reach up to God, and let his spirit fill you. Put it down, let it go, lift it up. Jesus gave and continues to give the spirit of power, presence, and potential. Jesus gives the solution To our lack of peace, which is forgiveness. That's the third thing he gave the disciples. The power to remember that our sins are forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is your cup filled with stuff and you want it to be filled with the Spirit? At the end of the service, let us pray with you. Is your cup filled with marshmallows, marshmallows of grief and hurt and unforgiveness or wounds and scars? Let us pray with you at the end of the service. Is your cup in need of the forgiveness that only Jesus can give for yourself or for someone else? Let us pray for you after the service. The first pew will be open during the last hymn. Come forward and our deacons and our pastors would love to pray with you. Why? Because Jesus said, peace be with you. Amen.